hi, everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd. And it is time for another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, where we give you guys the best segments from the Needle Drop and Fantano channels from throughout the week. We stack them up with reviews. This episode is no different. In this one, we have my newest takes on the latest albums from Daniel Caesar. Also, pop artist Kim Petras. Her new record, Clarity, has quite a few great tracks on it. Also going to be talking about the latest EP from internet cult viral multimedia art sensation Poppy. Her choke EP is quite good. The new Ed Sheeran collaborative project is uh, bad. I'll let you know why. And also one of the most harrowing musical experiences I've had this year, the new Uboa album, The Origin of My Depression, my thoughts on that as well. I also have some track reviews coming up for the new Tom McDonald song, If I Was Black. The terrible rapper has come out with one of his wokest songs yet. And uh, also, not a track review, but uh, some thoughts on my inclusion in the newest music video from Little Nas X uh, for the remix of the remix of Old Town Road with Mason Ramsey and Young Thug. I'm also going to be talking about uh, how far, I, I guess, the remix game can go. Remixing popular songs forever? Is it the way of the future? We'll talk about it. So we're going to have that in this episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. So get ready. Here we go. Strap in. Ba-bam. And it's time for a review of the new Daniel Caesar record, Case Study 01. Singer and songwriter Daniel Caesar, he is back Canada native. He is finally following up his 2017 record Freudian, which was a pretty big breakout moment for him. A record of lightly groovy neo-soul and R&B tracks that were sweet to the ear and very easygoing, kind of pensive. And as solid as I thought this album was, I did come away from it wishing that the vocals were a bit more gripping, that the production was more bold and maybe a little out there, because quite a bit of the beats on this thing did feel very, very, very sanitary. So going into this new record, I don't really know what I was hoping for, honestly. Maybe some more risks, some more sound play. Daniel's singing, while not bad, could certainly be more emotionally captivating. So after listening to Case Study 01, there is one thing that I can say for sure, and it's that the production, the recording, the instrumentals here, they're not nearly as pristine, they're not as squeaky clean. The instrumentals feel a lot more homespun and blemished, which can be endearing on certain tracks. And that is kind of funny, because nearly every track on this record does have a major producer or a studio attached to it, whether that be Jordan Evans or Matthew Burnett. Between the both of them, they've worked with artists like Jay-Z and Lil Wayne and Eminem. Also, some of the material on this thing was even recorded at Abbey Road Studios, which is one of many locations these songs were tracked at. So if this thing does sound a little all over the place on the whole of the track list, that can contribute a little bit as to why. So I definitely appreciate that Daniel Caesar seemed to have had a lot of industry backing going into this project, but the song still came out as unpolished, a little impressionistic. I think I can generally say that Case Study 01 is weirder and a bit artsier than its predecessor, but even with that, I still feel like Daniel is a far cry away from making a record that has a truly distinct sound or style within the current landscape of R&B and soul. I feel like if you've heard a number of songs from the early days of Anderson Pack, 
of Frank Ocean, maybe some Solange or D'Angelo, some of the internet, Steve Lacey too. You've already heard a great deal of what Daniel is attempting on this LP. Without a doubt, he's still a capable songwriter on this album. There are some decent tunes to be heard here, but sometimes the execution does feel off, like there are tracks here that could have used another take. The awkward falsetto vocals all over the track Open Up are a prime example of that to me. Also, Daniel's nearly comatose singing on the end of Too Deep to Turn Back. Popular R&B singer Brandy's appearance on the track Love Again is uncharacteristically weak as well. Again, many moments on this album that I think could have used a do-over. There are a number of instrumentals as well that to my ears just feel very basic, very plain, kind of lifeless. The song Restore the Feeling is a great example of this. I do like the intimate tone of the track. The vocals feel so close, so upfront, like I'm listening to a very tiny powwow of a song. But God, does this beat feel demo-ish. Ugh. It's so naked, dusty, colorless, and flavorless, it absolutely kneecaps the full potential of the song. I pretty much feel the same way about the instrumental on the song Complexities. Also, the very thin acoustic guitars and cheap springy reverb or delay on the closing track here as well is kind of uninspired and, to me, definitely beneath production-wise any artist that is releasing a record on a huge platform. And absolutely, I can understand taking the simple road or taking the simple approach, but it's not exactly like any of the beats here are so minimal that they're experimental, are so simplistic or so sparse that they're making an artistic statement in that regard. Truly, most of the music here just sounds half-baked and that's all. And maybe partially the reason for this is that Daniel is trying to catch lightning in a bottle. I think that may be why nothing on this album feels like he labored over it too heavily. And this isn't necessarily a bad approach if what you end up generating figuratively, is pure electricity. But if those aren't the results that you're actually getting when you're finally putting these songs together, it's time to go back to the drawing board and start assembling your tracks in a more composed and meticulous fashion. While generally I wouldn't say the album is terrible or intolerable, there were really only a few tracks that stood out to me as being supremely good, well-written, well-performed, well-produced. We have the lush and dreamy superposition featuring John Mayer. The guitars on this track are great. Daniel Caesar's lead vocal melody is pretty fantastic too. This song, in my opinion, actually contains the best vocal performance from Caesar on the entire record. Yes, it is a little sleepy, it's a little lullaby-like, but it's still a very pretty tune. I feel like I'm just being cradled in with his voice. We also have frontal lobe music featuring Pharrell Williams. Pharrell's vocal melody is kind of weird on this track, but it's still sweet as honey and adds a nice bit of quirk and levity to the song. I do have to admit though, this is one of those moments on this record, while I do like the song, it's it's a track that I, <laughs> I kind of wish Anderson Pack was on it. I feel like instrumentally and aesthetically, this is exactly the kind of, of track that Pack would kill it on top of, because while Caesar singing is good, uh, he doesn't quite bring the same amount of swagger, and I can feel him trying to turn that up a little bit on this song, but he doesn't quite push it far enough. I don't know, man. Again, I don't think this record is the worst thing I've heard all year. There is a lot of potential here, and I feel like if Daniel finds a way to 
make this somewhat artsier, messier direction work into the future, this could be really cool. But for a majority of the time, I just feel like the stars aren't aligning on this record. Sometimes the singing is pretty great, but everything else is just okay. Sometimes the instrumental is captivating or goes in an interesting direction, but then the singing or the song is just kind of bland. Yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty indifferent to it, frankly. I'm feeling a light five on this one. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Kim Petrus record, Clarity. This is the debut full-length album of German-born pop artist Miss Kim Petrus. A musical event that she has been building up to with 20 or so different single releases since 2017. One song after another, a few of which have become minor internet hits. Heart to Break or I Don't Want It All, easily her biggest song yet. Yeah, pretty much every track from her new record here was dropped prior to its release, so there's not really much left up to the imagination for the whole thing. And for the most part, it does feel like a lot of the artistic focus is on each song individually as opposed to how they come together as a whole. The result is a 38-minute pop record that is standard by most metrics. I think Kim is still incubating as far as developing a more distinct sound unless the goal is ultimately to blend into the pop landscape as much as possible. What I do know is I hear a lot of potential on this record. I hear a lot of talent on this record and I would love for Kim to head to a place where she is just a bit more bold in style. If the 12 tracks on this album illustrate anything, it's that Kim is an incredibly capable singer who favors very glossy, glamorous production, some of which throws back to the heydays of dance pop and synth pop. There are beats and melodies on this thing that remind me of the likes of Robin or Britney Spears even Charlie XCX. I would cite Carly Rae Jepsen as well. A bulk of the production and the co-songwriting on this thing is handled by the tag team of Aaron Joseph and Made in China, AKA Dr. Luke. Yes, that Dr. Luke. I guess he's recently begun working under a pseudonym after the very public and very dramatic falling out that he had with Kesha in 2016. She made allegations of abuse toward him. There was a lawsuit. It was eventually dismissed. And despite the dismissal, the fiasco this created in the entertainment industry's headlines was huge. So it's not really a surprise that Made in China would start operating in a more covert fashion. So Made in China, Dr. Luke seems pretty deeply artistically tied to each song on this record. And it's no wonder because a lot of what's here sounds so, so, so familiar. I think the track list on this thing is pretty front-loaded though. The biggest anthems, the biggest bangers, the most memorable tunes, they all seem to turn up in the first half. We have the opening track, also the title track, the idyllic and introspective clarity. I got clarity, I got clarity. The tune on this song is pretty, it's cute, it's solid. I love the way Kim's voice shines amongst all these very glossy futuristic synth tones. We also have the dramatic Icy, which is like this righteous pop anthem straight out of the 80s. It has that classic 80s sheen to it, that crisp reverb, those gated drums. But it's not purely an exercise in nostalgia because there is a punchy groove and some rumbling bass that you would typically hear in a newer pop tune. Ultimately, the selling point of this track, though, is Kim's vocal performance. Her singing is bold, it's authoritative, and now I got ice cold. 
Her singing on this track is just exploding with passion. We also got the flirty and unapologetically sexual Got My Number, which has a feel-good beat, incredibly smooth vocal harmonies. I like the versatility that Kim shows on this track. She can kill it on a song like Icy, but also still sound incredibly skilled vocally on a track like this one that, by comparison, is much more laid back. We also get some sugar-sweet dance pop on the track Sweet Spot, featuring these driving kick drums, house influences, kind of throwing it back to the early 2000s output of Kylie Minogue or even Daft Punk. Solid groove, solid tune on Personal Hell. We get this very clear influence coming from the darker side of synth pop from back in the day. It's almost like a, an old soft cell single. The verses are pretty understated, as they are in many pop songs these days, just to make the choruses sound like they're exploding more than they actually are, but still, they stay pretty engaging. Lyrically and vocally, Kimberly sells this idea of feeling trapped in a personal hell, there is an incredible sense of urgency and emotional stress in her performance. I'd say it's past this point, though, where the tracks on this record start to waver in terms of quality or memorability. The song Broken, in comparison with a lot of the other tracks here, is pretty current in that it sounds like a very typical blend of modern pop and R&B with a bit of a trap instrumental hanging in the background. It's very Ariana Grande-ish in that respect. And Kim's singing on this track seems a lot less purposeful than it is on other songs here, like it's not as composed, like she's riffing vocally a little bit, and a few of the results are just okay. I prefer Kim singing on the track All I Do Is Cry Without You, but the issue with this song is that <sighs> While there are great aspects to this song, the main melodic theme of the cut is repeated mercilessly throughout its runtime to the point where it just gets stale. Surely an example of the songwriting on this record being a little half-baked. And this issue is not helped at all by the incredibly boring rhyme scheme. Simultaneously, I feel like the vibe this song brings forward was already achieved on Icy so much better. The song Do Me is maybe the best track in the second half of this record, though I know there are some people who may not like the incredibly raunchy and graphic lyrics. It is is titled Do Me, and that's exactly what it's about. Hands on the ass, throwing it back. Still, though, I am pretty amazed by Kim's stunning vocal performance on this track. Like, there are some crazy high notes she is hitting here that I did not know she could do, and, and damn, damn. I think the record continues to go downhill from here, though. Another one blow it all. Easily two of the blandest songs on the entire project. The latter's lyrics are actually pretty tough to overlook, too. And the track Meet the Parents may be my least favorite on Clarity, mostly because instrumentally it's so tedious and Kim's vocals on this song are processed in a really hideous way, to the point where her singing just sounds really flat contained, lifeless, robotic. And even though I get it's a bit of a stylistic shift and change, I suppose it does add some variation to the track list. The key appeal of this record for me, and I think for a lot of people, is going to be how good of a singer Kim actually is. And to put her in a song in a series of vocal effects that essentially limits the organic qualities of her voice, the power and the volume and the personality of her voice, just seems counterproductive. The finishing song on this thing is a cute, low-key ballad about succeeding and just pushing forward despite naysayers. Being trans herself, I'm sure having your legitimacy and validity questioned, is something Kim has had to deal with. The verses on this track are just okay, though it's really the gorgeous choruses and the sentiment of the song that I'm 
really partial to. The song's essentially like this self-affirming Katy Perry-type moment, except it doesn't really go big or far enough. And that is pretty much this Kim Petrus record. It's okay. It's decent. It's a likable pop record that has a lot of highs, but many of those highs are congregating at the front of the album. I feel like it starts to lose flavor. The best songwriting starts to dissipate. And again, as I said earlier in the review, I would love to hear Kim drop an album at some point in the future where her style, her sound, her something is more memorable, distinct, easy to parse out and separate from all of the other pop singers that she is currently shoulder to shoulder with. And given the good production choices and song choices and also vocal talent she showcases on this project, I have no doubt that that, that that is possible. Fingers crossed. I'm feeling a decent two strong six on this one. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new poppy EP, Choke. This is the latest EP from the internet's favorite YouTube content creator, cult leader, sort of a robot, sort of a person, sort of a pop star, Poppy. Poppy's entrance into the music world started with a handful of semi-successful albums that dabbled in everything from electropop to ambient music to new metal. And keep in mind that Poppy is not really a single person, but more of a vision or an ongoing multimedia project spearheaded by Mariah Rose Pereira and Titanic Sinclair. So yes, there is a visual component to it. It's not just a music thing. And so far between these two mediums, the Poppy lore has gotten pretty deep and pretty weird. It's difficult to sum up the totality of Poppy's video catalog on YouTube. Some of what's there does feel like a mere expression of absurdity, but there are underlying commentaries on narcissism and the world of social media and just the information age in general. And more recently, the legal drama spilling out between them and former Titanic Sinclair collaborator Mars Argo, which to my knowledge has now been settled. So thus far, aesthetically and philosophically, Poppy has never really been one thing. So why should her music or why should her sound settle into one style. While Choke isn't an entirely new sound for Poppy, it does explore further some of the darker and more alternative sounds that she dabbled in on her last album, Am I a Girl, specifically on the tracks Play Destroy and X. And Choke not only gives us one more dose of that, but also these moody fusions of pop and industrial music. The super heavy beats and despondent pianos on the tracks Choke and Holy Mountain feel like something off of an old Nine Inch Nails record, but updated for a new generation. And yeah, I do think the tune on Choke is sort of forgettable, but I do like stylistically what Poppy is shooting for on that cut. Holy Mountain, though, is much more memorable from a songwriting standpoint. And I love the way that Poppy weaves in these heavenly vocal passages in between these absolutely emotionally devastating piano parts on the hooks. It's simple, but it's effective. And speaking of mixing moods together, we have the track uh, Scary Mask featuring The Fever 333. Stylistically, it's all over the place. It's total madness. It's insane. Who the hell cooked this up? But it's done so incredibly well. In the same song, Poppy takes us from euphoric, blissful, dreamy indie pop to uh, thunderous hardcore and shouts of M-A-S-K-M. Okay, M-A-S-K-M-I-O-K! -okay. 
And even though you get all these transitions on the same song, it's still a very compelling and fun and entertaining song. And the segues are not cheap. It's all very well developed and put together. I wish he would come out with more tracks like this, not only because it's a very bold combination of a variety of different styles, but this is easily the most detailed song on the entire EP, really the crown jewel of the EP. I would say Meat comes in at a close second, mostly because the song at the core of all of it is really great. You get some electro vibes on the instrumental, some industrial vibes as well, but the driving dance beat and somewhat dreamy production calls back to like an old Crystal Castles album. It's very dark, goth-friendly dance music with a somewhat dystopian edge to the lyrics. And overall, I like this EP. I think it's a solid EP. It's a cool mini chapter in the ongoing Poppy-verse. And while I wouldn't want to hear Poppy chase after just one sound or one vibe for the rest of her musical career, uh, these are ideas I would like to hear at least a little bit more of before she goes off into something else. I guess I just really hope this EP is a sign of something even bigger and better to come. I'm feeling a decent too strong seven on it. Transition into the next review. This new Ed Sheeran record, it's, it's not good. Ed Sheeran. UK singer-songwriter, number six collaborations project, a follow-up to his number five collaborations EP from years and years and years ago in 2011 where he collaborated with a number of artists, mostly rappers, from his neck of the woods. I would say at the time that he made number five, it wasn't amazing, but it was at least an admirable effort from a dude who isn't typically seen as much more than just an acoustic songwriter, a balladeer. But as you may have noticed lately, the musical landscape has been shifting under Mr. Ed Sheeran's feet. I think he has been doing his best to try to respond to those changes with his last full-length album, which of course, I didn't like. I wasn't a fan, but I could at least admire and appreciate, okay, he's trying to update his style a little bit to incorporate elements of pop, of hip-hop, to make it seem a bit more current, but it would seem Ed was not prepared to stop just there. No, now he has come through with another collaborations project, number six, and it's actually huge, a whole album with one track after another, with one feature, one collaboration after another. And God is it bad. And look, I don't mean to say that it's bad and that every single track on this thing is just intolerable to the point where I'm violently puking whenever it's on. The vast majority of songs on this album are very radio-ready, very listenable by contemporary pop standards, but beyond that and a few R&B crossovers that are actually pretty decent, like the LMA track, the Her track, a vast majority of what's here is just totally soulless garbage. That also serves as yet another horrible example of how toxic feature culture has become in modern pop music. Now, I would still argue the worst offender on this front is DJ Khaled, especially on his last record. The dude literally assembles almost randos on a bunch of different beats with little in the way of song idea, song structure. Ed, I can at least say, is coming together with artists with coherent, well-fleshed-out, well-structured, clearly-structured songs, but it seems like every track on the record only serves to put Ed in a slightly different context where, oh, he's trying a little dance hall, he's doing a little hip-hop, he's doing a little bit of that new, that new Latin wave that we're all enjoying so much. And Ed's attempts at trying his hand at all these different music styles only exposes just 
how surface level his appreciation for all of them are, because his take on dancehall, his take on Latin pop, his take on R&B, his take on these weird Ed Sheeran rap fusions, it's like I'm listening to the most gentrified version of each of these sounds imaginable. There are songs on this thing that, again, are straight up trash, like the closing cut featuring Chris Stapleton and Bruno Mars, which is this like, horns out rock and roll song that's um, pretty cringy and just tough to listen to. The guitar riffs throw back to this like hard rock era, but it just sounds very sucky, cheap, boring, bland. Bruno Mars and Chris Stapleton make absolutely no sense whatsoever over this kind of instrumental. There's no vocal chemistry between these three guys on this track, and I would say even Ed Sheeran sounds very out of place over these kinds of guitars. The tune on Way to Break My Heart I thought was okay. The Skrillex instrumental is nowhere near as obnoxious as one would assume it would be given it's Skrillex. It's not like Ed is just wailing over dubstep wubs and bass drops. The instrumental is actually kind of chill, but still pretty one-dimensional and bland. Young Thug and Jay Huss sound awkward line up with Ed on the track feels, but really the worst thing about this song is just how crappy the chorus is. Baby, I got the feels, yeah. Say that I'm out of my mind, but it's something real, something real. I got the feels, yeah, bada boom, bada bing, you'll knock me right off my feet. I've waited most of my life for something real. Baby, I got the feels for ya. Baby, I got the feels for ya. Not exactly the epitome of great pop lyric writing in 2019. On an Ed Sheeran song was about the last place that I wanted to hear Eminem and 50 Cent coming together this decade. Ed's lyrics about being a misfit and being misunderstood just feel really general, like they're pandering, like they don't really mean anything, like the listener is just supposed to project their experiences and their feelings onto the song and that's it. Antisocial featuring Travis Scott is an unholy matrimony of Ed's typical songwriting style, some elements of electro, some elements of hip-hop, some elements of Travis Scott's trademark psychedelic trap sound with the reverb, with the auto-tune, you've heard it at this point. And while I will say I have heard some worse, I have heard some worse Travis Scott features and crossovers in the past year or so, this one is still not very good. Structurally, the song is sound, the instrumental isn't bad, and Travis Scott gives a decent vocal performance, but really the greatest issue with this song for me ultimately is that it has absolutely no teeth whatsoever. What typically makes Travis Scott's music interesting or exciting or evocative uh, just ends up getting neutered before the final song was getting exported, I guess. I don't care featuring Justin Bieber, terrible song. Not only are the lyrics about going to a party and I guess not wanting to be there not interesting at all, but vocally Justin and Ed have absolutely no chemistry singing over each other. It's like just pouring a glass of water into a glass of water. Not only that, but instrumentally, God, there's no bump to this track, there's no flavor. It just feels like it's meant to be a piece of playlist filler. You could slip it into any number of playlists on Spotify. It's gonna get tons of plays. Nobody's gonna skip it because it just sounds so background. Take Me Back to London featuring Stormzy. I do like Stormzy's feature on the track, but Ed's vocals crash into his at a few points that I don't really care for at all. The track just feels very jumbled, like structurally there's not enough space in it. Also, the very plucky and regal strings playing throughout the song just feel very stereotypical for a track that's supposed to be about London, just as the synth pan flutes are on the track South of the Border, which in my opinion is maybe one of the grossest songs on the entire record, as the track is essentially about sexualizing and fetishizing Latin women and you've named it south of the border, 
and then you've invited two women of Latin descent onto the track to perform with you. If this is okay, why wouldn't it be okay for Ed to have like two black R&B singers on a track and name it Jungle Fever? And funnily enough, I came to this conclusion before Cardi B's verse popped in where she actually says, Ed has a little jungle fever on this song. Beautiful People featuring Khalid is just uh, boring as hell. Very boring, bland intro, but uh, what, what else do you expect? I don't think Khalid makes very interesting music generally. And I'm not sure what else to say about this album. It's just very focus grouped. It's very cheap. Just seems like Ed with his label are trying to maximize profits by bringing in as many popular voices as possible, by trying to attempt one genre, one popular trendy style after the next. Doesn't feel like there's a lot of heart or authenticity as he is dabbling in a lot of sounds that are outside of his comfort zone. He's just trying to come out of it giving you the most agreeable and plain version of whatever he's attempting as possible. Artistically, this album is pretty cheap. It's pretty substanceless. It feels less like Ed is trying to feel his soul and more like he's trying to feel some green, and that's it. This Ed Sheeran album, it's not good. And it's time for a review of the Uboa album, The Origin of My Depression. Uboa is not just a name I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, it's also a musical project spearheaded by multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, producer, Zandra Metcalf, who to my knowledge has been dropping music under this pseudonym since the earlier part of this decade. And now, nine years later, we have kind of a breakthrough in the underground with The Origin of My Depression. Now, even though Uboa has been in existence for the entirety of this decade so far, it's had a lot of time to evolve as a project, the stylistic influences for the most part have continually orbited around experimental music, noise, industrial music, drone, dark ambient, even sludge metal and post-rock. The more abrasive and abstract elements of Uboa's sound seem to have taken more precedent as the discography has gotten deeper and deeper. And now all of that culminates into this disturbing, heavy, beautiful, and sobering album, The Origin of My Depression. This album is more than just an album, it's an experience. It is really something. It's a piece, a holistic piece. It is a supremely deep and cerebral dive into Zandra's most negative and intense feelings surrounding depression and a host of other things. Her experience as a transgender woman and also what I read as severe feelings of abandonment. She essentially expresses all these emotions through chilling soundscapes, crushing walls of rumbling distortion and industrial percussion. There's quite a bit of variety across the track list in terms of sound palettes and mood. The reason for that being as we listen deeper into the album, it's like we're progressing into darker and darker territory in a pretty cinematic fashion, and the whole record runs at a very trim 40 minutes, spread out along seven songs, all of which segue into each other and connect very holistically, and it all becomes a somewhat traumatizing ordeal. There are despondent lows on this record. There are violent thrashing and explosive highs. No question, Zandra has done an excellent job at translating what she's been dealing with 
into this record. Now, even though I find the emotional experience of this album to be pretty unique, that's not to say there aren't very clear stylistic influences I'm picking up on, or at least creative parallels I'm picking up on as I listen through the album. There are at least a few moments where I feel like I'm listening to more recent noise or power electronic artists like Prurient, or dark ambient and drone projects like Sun or Lustmord. I think Pharmacon fans need to make note of this album. I think Lingua Ignata fans need to make note of this album. I think the Body fans need to make note of this album. And there are even some acoustic elements of this record with lots of cascading notes and organic bits of instrumentation that just remind me of a Mount Erie record, a Microphones record, just Phil Elvram's work in general. To go through the tracks on this project, because there aren't that many, the opener detransitioning sees Zandra finding her vocal footing over these stuttering, kind of sparse piano notes. It doesn't sound like much at first, a little confused, not sure where to go. It's a little stand offish. It's kind of unkempt. More impatient listeners might go into this thinking, what is going on here? This sounds so awkward. But very quickly, the instrumental ascends and fills out with all these droning, almost cultish vocal layers. It just instantly turns into this strange alien wall of sound. Then some weird sound effects popping up in the background that sounds like a poltergeist slamming something, trying to communicate with people from beyond the grave. The wall of sound eventually turns noisy, harsh, industrial. We have gone from strange euphoria to abrasive dystopia in a pretty incredible progression too. It's heavy as hell and the sound plays very good. So this quickly segues into the title track of the record. We kick the track off with it being in a very strange state. We are hit with this very low, subtle, otherworldly drone that while it may be quiet, I think it says a lot about the space that it exists in. It's like in a great hall. It's like I'm no longer standing on the mortal plane. I feel like someone's watching me or I'm in a space where an ancient ritual is being held. Eventually, Zandra introduces these tones that are kind of clumsy, but also mystical, clanging, dull bells or chimes just overlapping. And on top of this, Xandra starts delivering these muttered bits of spoken word that talk about the origins of her depression, and it moves through a chilling progression. Like the opening track, the song builds wonderfully and reaches a very abrasive climax. The drone gets heavier, gets thicker, gets more menacing. Suddenly, the vocals are no longer muttered, but they are just screaming, totally insane screams, not going from zero to 60, but zero to 660. And the vocals are not buried in the drone at all. They are very, very loud and very, very in your face. They are eye-widening. They are freaky. They are unsettling. They are blood-curdling. The track eventually hits a breaking point. We instantly transition into lay down and rot, where suddenly we are warped into yet another chilling soundscape. There are a lot of similarities and parallels between this track and the previous one, in my opinion, but we kick this one off in a place where where it feels like it's starting at an even darker and in a worse point. Of course, it doesn't kick off at its most intense moment, but we eventually get there. And at this point, the album has, has certainly crossed over into a territory where it's just consistently 
horrifying, profoundly disturbing. More screams, more soul-sucking noise. All these hits of glitchy distortion just compound on top of one another until they're just pressing into me and I'm, and I'm losing my breath. Being sensitive to the overall flow of the album, Zandra very smartly provides a euphoric spot after this track, the song Epilation Joy, and while this song does bring back in some more organic instrumental elements, it's a lot easier on the ears, there's still something kind of sour about the background drone. The vibe of the track eventually sours, starts sounding absolutely horrid, and then we instantly transition into the noisiest and the nastiest spot on the entire record. And that is Please Don't Leave Me. Interestingly, the song kicks off with like this very quick gasp, like Zandra or the protagonist woke up from a nightmare, from a sound sleep in a cold sweat or something. <gasps> and right after that gasp, we are hit with the most punishing, relentless, and frankly abusive noise on the entire album. This spot on the record is not for the faint of heart, not only because of the noise on it, but the layered demonic vocals, what sounds like even a gun loading or the hammer on a gun clicking. If you seriously struggle with depression or suicidal thoughts and you don't find music or art that dabbles in those things cathartic, because I know some people do, some people don't, you may want to avoid this record. Because essentially this track feels like we are succumbing to another dark episode on the album and this one is just the worst one. After this track, Xandra eases up a little bit, but not really on the track Angel of Great and Terrible Light. We do kick the track off with these sparkly acoustic guitars and ice cold but consistent kick drum. It's a super duper duper simple progression, but the way Xandra builds on it very slowly, eventually reaching a point where it gets so heavy and roaring and blaring that it's almost deafening, that's pretty much what ends up making this piece so powerful. As I mentioned earlier with some of the acoustic elements on this track, I am getting a strong Phil Elvrum vibe, especially with some of the vocals being so off-putting. And Misspent Youth is a somewhat interesting and somber closer. We almost return to where we started on the album, the vocals, the pianos. It's sparse, it's open, it's meandering, doesn't have a strong sense of direction. The performance on this track comes off really lost and wounded. The pianos eventually fuse with these roaring bass tones that feel like they're something out of a Sun record. The ending wasn't as strong as I hoped it would be. There's not a strong sense of resolution to this point on the album, though maybe in the concept of it or the emotional reality of the experience this album is based around, there's no true sense of resolution. I will say the track does drag on a little bit, and this song serves, again, as many moments on the album where the vocals do feel just a little misdirected, a little too quiet, and I get that indirectness on the record is trying to make a point, but I feel like by the end of the record that point has been beaten into the ground, so the whole thing does go out with more of a whimper than a bang. Still though, there are elements of this track I find captivating, and every moment up until this point is pretty convincing, enthralling, and moving, impactful. This thing is a powerfully dark record with a lot of great ideas on it. Not the most original or groundbreaking in these styles, but surely an emotional experience I'm going to remember for uh, quite a while. I'm feeling a light to decent eight on this thing. Hey buddy.
It's track reviews. Ladies and gentlemen, when will the cringe stop? When will it end? When will the era of cringe be over? I don't know. I truly do not know. And I feel like with, with pieces of content like the one I'm about to show you, that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. We do not know when this is going to be when this is going to be finished. I'm going to be talking about the, the new Tom McDonald song and music video, If I Was Black. Tom McDonald is a rapper who you guys might remember. I've, I've covered a handful of times on this channel before. Uh, in every instance, usually mostly just kind of cringing at what Tom is saying on the topic of racial politics, his victim complex, being the guy who's like, you guys are just a bunch of triggered SJWs, is essentially the career path Tom has chosen in the music industry. Uh, whenever he sort of pops up out of nowhere, he's always got some head something to say. So I don't know. I, I, I have no reason to believe that that will not also be the case <laughs> with this new song over here. I will say this though, uh, for as terrible as many of Tom's songs and opinions are, again, I think a lot of the time as evidenced by the Mac lethal disses that came out recently, I, I do think he tends to punch under his weight and knows that he's just basically feeding a really reductive black and white narrative to his nearly brainless fan base. And I don't know, I, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, there's a 99% chance it's not going to happen here, but maybe we're going to see an instance where Tom pulls through w with a profound thought that actually makes sense and is not just encased in his narrow-minded egoism, maybe we will see that moment here. Who knows? I guess we'll see. Let's give it a try. Let's give it a shot. Tom McDonald, If I Was Black. Okay, that was that. I have mixed feelings on that. First off, I want to say that there, there's a there's a bit of a dislike here, and I'm wondering I'm wondering if these dislikes are coming from people who have always kind of hated Tom McDonald, or if his fan base is turning on him a little bit because I think some of them won't necessarily vibe with the message of this track. It felt a bit contradictory to the message I normally get from your music. It would have been better, in my opinion, if you had expressed how you wouldn't be any different if you were black rather than representing all the stereotypes. If I were black, I probably wouldn't like Tom McDonald. Okay, now I'm going to scroll up because I am now seeing some weird anti-Semitic Jewish question type comments, and uh, that's not uh, anything I, I, I want to read. Thank you. Okay, my thoughts on this track. I guess I could give Tom McDonald uh, kudos on this song definitely has a bit more perspective than the tracks that he usually puts out. Uh, I, I can say that. I'm not going to say that Tom putting himself in the shoes of a black man 
doesn't come with its limitations, though, because I, I feel like a lot of what this track boils down to is not so much trying to get his audience or get any of the listeners to understand black people as individuals on a personal level. It's just a bunch of one-liners that he feels are throwing out important information, but at the end of the day, a lot of what's kind of being delivered on this song it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of stereotypes. Of course, a lot of these stereotypes are backed up by harsh realities that uh, a lot of people of color face. And even though I appreciate Tom being a bit more sensitive to those hardships to boil African Americans down to essentially everything bad that's happened to them is kind of dehumanizing in its own way. I will say the flow is okay. The hook was certainly better than a lot of the hooks that he's dropped as of late. Instrumental was pretty grand, I guess. The structure of the song was fine. I thought the music video was the cringiest part of the whole track with Tom like leading some kind of black power meeting and just like rapping to all of the black members of the audience. And they're like essentially spitting his lyrics back at him. It's it's. Ugh. You know, there is such a thing discussed in black social circles as the white savior complex or the need for some white people to feel like they can just stand up and speak on behalf of black people. And it's 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 the reason why so many people have an issue with uh, a film like Green Book winning Best Picture, because even though the film and this song acknowledge racism, acknowledge economic disparities, acknowledge a host of, of different societal oppressions that the black community faces, it is all fed through the lens of, hey, here's this white guy speaking out on it. How benevolent and amazing and woke as fuck is this white guy for just like telling it like it is, speaking the truth, coming to save the day, which of course is self-serving in its own way. And you can't tell me this track isn't driven by at least a little bit of egoism, given that Tom is rapping from the standpoint of, if I was black, I would think this, I would do that. This would be happening to me. So once more, while I can commend Tom on coming through with, I guess, one of his least offensive songs yet, in maybe most well-intentioned songs, it's still pretty corny. It's still kind of missing the mark. Uh, I'm not sure if the song is totally landing with the most idiotic members of his audience that really bought into the I'm white and bad things are happening to me narrative that he has pushed up until this point. I guess time will tell. Maybe what this song is illustrating to us is that this entire time, Tom McDonald has just been messing with us and pulling, uh, you, know, you know, these these enlightened centrist individuals in, so that he could just like, bam, hit him, hit him with this weak sauce woke track that, uh, again, I, I think uh, serves Tom's savior complex more than it does uh, the, the problems that he's trying to address in the song. So those are my thoughts. New Old Town Road music video. The remix featuring Mason Ramsey and Young Thug. Of course, Billy Ray Cyrus as well, who was on the, the first remix of the song. And uh, yeah, I'm in the music video. How did this come about? 
How did this happen, Anthony? Well, Illustrator, some hoodlum who obviously crafted the visuals of this uh, cartoon music video, is a fan of the show. He has, I, I believe, drawn me before. He has a great Instagram account where he draws all sorts of uh, rappers and figures in, a, uh, in, in pop culture. And, uh, and yeah, he, he just sort of approached me in Twitter through the DMs. He said, we are doing an Old Town Road uh, music video. It's going to be animated and there is going to be a security guard. They're going to be storming Area 51. And I wanted to know if you were up for being the security guard. Is it okay if I use your likeness in the video? And I said, sure, you know, cool. That sounds fun. That sounds fine to me. And honestly, um, I was a little surprised because I do get quite a few emails or contacts over social media from people connected in the industry, and they may reach out and propose an idea or throw something out there, and sometimes I'm into it, sometimes I'm not, and a lot of the time when I agree, it doesn't end up panning out, something else happens, other decisions were made. I mean, you know, nothing's really guaranteed when uh, you have lots of people, especially industry people, in on the decision-making process of any given thing. But some hoodlum messaged me maybe just a few days before the music video actually came out. So when I agreed to it, I don't know, I wasn't expecting to actually see it for another month or so. But then, bam, the music video is just out. And it's like, oh, okay, that, that was like, basically instantaneous. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't really have any contact with the label or any of the artists on the song or anything like that. It was really just some hoodlum reaching out and uh, putting me in the music video. Obviously, I think if uh, Little Nas X didn't want me in the video, he would have put the kibosh on that pretty quickly. It is his music video. And he did a uh, uh, sort of support me in mentioning on social media that, hey, I'm in the music video. So, you know, obviously there is awareness there that I'm in there. But yeah, it was mostly just happening through some hoodlum. You know, some people have uh, uh, theorized that it runs a lot deeper than that. But honestly, it, it, it really doesn't. And I'd prefer it to be that way. I don't want to go to some freaking meeting to be incorporated in a music video or whatever. You know, if I'm interested, I'll, you know, just nod and, uh, okay, sure. Yeah, that's fine with me. Uh, as, as, long as, I, as long as all I have to do is just approve of it. So yeah, I, th I thought my inclusion in the video was fun. I thought uh, it was surprising that I took up way more of the start of the music video than I thought I was going to. I thought literally there'd be a point where Little Nas X and uh, uh, maybe some other people just pass by me really quickly and I'm just like, I just appear for a quick second or something. But like literally I'm in the security guard station, I'm sleeping, there's a computer, I wake up, I fall down, I'm pointing out the window. It's, it's actually quite a few bits of, of the, the intro of the music video uh, that I appear in. And it's absolutely funny. It's absolutely ridiculous. I love the concept of the rest of the video. Uh, I thought uh, the aliens kind of uh, <laughs> giving them chains and uh, uh, giving them, uh, I don't know, just like um, alien cycles to ride and stuff was a uh, was pretty entertaining. I thought the soldiers guarding Area 51 wetting themselves instantly was pretty funny as well. So I don't know if I have much more to say about this other than that it was just funny, surprising, and and very flattering that I would be uh, included in such a thing. Two, two disappointments though. I'm not wearing a flannel. I really should be wearing some kind of flannel. I don't know why I'm not wearing a flannel. And, uh, and secondly, uh, there is a panini on my desk, which I, I get the reference. I get the... Uh, 
the little Nas X reference there with the panini, but that better have been some vegan cheese on that panini or I'm going to be pissed. You know, I know I agreed to be in in this video, but uh, I, I feel like any asks of, of such things in the future will have to include um, a write-up from my lawyer where it's like Anthony cannot be seen or pictured next to any animal products, okay? Because he has a, an image to maintain. Also, um, Anthony's teeth cannot be drawn or pictured in an unflattering manner. They are the best teeth in the game. And and I will say some hoodlum did do, did do uh, some justice to my teeth here. They, they look like pretty good teeth. He uh, he seemed to maintain <laughs> literally the same head, even though it's, it's literally the same facial expression. Uh, <laughs> Just in a different spot. There I am sleeping. Still, you know, te teeth look pretty decent there as well. So, <laughs> but uh, in, in Minecraft, I, I would not be playing Minecraft and I would not be on Facebook. I absolutely hate Facebook. I would be I, I would be on Twitter and I would be playing some Super Smash Brothers. OK, that is that is that is my jam. That is what I would be doing. OK, just to clarify. Finally, the last thing I want to say about Old Town Road, this music video and this remix and what I've been seeing in the news as potential forthcoming remixes. I've heard that Lil Wayne has a version coming out and Lil Nas X may in fact drop yet another remix. He's thrown out names like Megan the Stallion, for example. And what I'd like to leave this video commenting on is the shelf life that this song could potentially have through all of these remixes. It seems like every time a new remix drops, of course, it's not as immense as the first song. It's not as immense as the Billy Ray Cyrus version, but it seems like it gives the track another bump, another rush of attention, more streams, uh, which only increases the likelihood that this track will remain number one on the charts and actually attain the title of the longest running number one single in Billboard chart history, which is pretty amazing, which is pretty insane. I don't know if I talked about the likelihood of that too deeply in the last video where I did the review of the most recent remix here, but uh, I think Little Nas X is engaging, in, as well as his label too, because I'm sure he's not the only one cooking this up, engaging in a pretty genius campaign here where he is, in a very smart way, using memes, he's using the popularity of the song, he's using the desire of other artists to hop on the track and improve their own public image by taking part in this, in this cultural event. And I wonder if the way that Nas X is paving on this track will be repeated and copied by other artists down the road. You could argue this is not entirely a new thing because prior to this track, how many remixes of Blueface's Tatiana have there been? You know, how many remixes? Loads of remixes of that song. Uh, obviously, that track hasn't seen the kind of success that Old Town Road has, but still, any viral track on that level or on the level of this, from here on out, now that we have artists like Nas X and now that we have labels taking notice of how to draw this kind of stuff out successfully, uh, I have a feeling that this is going to be the new standard in a lot of respects. Anytime a song hits, of course, we're going to get a remix at some point, but we're going to get two remixes, three remixes, four remixes, and then we may actually get a few music videos out of the whole thing as well. So in summation, uh, we may be on the cusp of a new era of remixing remixes 
that are remixing remixes. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm happy to, I guess, be a, a very small, tiny, little itty bitty part of that history. Uh, that's that's interesting. That's fun. And I guess I will uh, leave it at that. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. It is greatly appreciated. Make sure to hit up our socials, twitter.com slash the needle drop, a Fantano on Instagram, the needle drop on YouTube, Fantano on YouTube, also with the needle If you don't want to miss a single piece of content, we drop from week to week. I want to give a shout out to Jonah for editing this episode as well as he does every episode of the podcast and also make sure whatever platform you are listening to this on, you're subscribing, you are rating, you are leaving a positive review, helps out the show, helps out this show. And uh, yeah, that's it, guys. We will see you in the next one. Anthony Fantano, Needle Drop Podcast, forever. (laughs) 